word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time to be able to be together tonight. We thank you for this wonderful book and for the truth that it contains. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together tonight, that you would open our hearts, open our ears to what you would desire for us to hear. We pray that you would help us to order our lives according to the truth of your holy scriptures and that through your Holy Spirit, you would lead us into all truth. We thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to invite all of you, if you have not, to mute yourselves uh, so that we are uh, able to focus in on uh, what we have before us tonight, which, as usual, starts off with this marvelous scripture verse from Peter uh, in the epistle. And so let's say this together. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And there is much truth in that. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit tonight about the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So uh, hold on to your seats for that. Uh, I want to say a special word of welcome to anyone who's new. Uh, we continue to get new people every week, which is just amazing to me. Um, some in this class, some on the podcast, some on YouTube. And I just want to say to the folks that are new, we're delighted to have you at any level that you would like to participate. You can be what we call on the beach, uh, which means you show up when you feel like it and you do what you want. Um, you can fall asleep. You can do whatever you want. Uh, you don't have to read the book or say a word. It's all good. Or you can snorkel, which means you pay attention to the things that you are interested in, um, but not so much the other things. And you might have a nice glass of wine uh, and an hors d'oeuvre uh, during those parts. Or if you are like me and you are really deeply nerdy, uh, you can be a scuba diver. And those of you who are scuba diving uh, have an extra treat that came in the email uh, yesterday and today, uh, which leads me to talking about the email list, that if you are not on my email list for the class, please send me your address. Um, you can reach me by Googling St. Philip's Church Charleston and going onto our website, and you will be able to find my email right there, and I will get you added to the list. The scuba divers this week, I want to encourage you, there is a wonderful, marvelous article from the um, source with the unlikely name of something like the Internet Dictionary of Philosophy, but it is a very fine article on Thomas Aquinas and metaethics and the cardinal virtues, and it's it's pretty long, but if you, if you uh, got excited about what we were talking about last week, um, I would commend this to you. It's, it's worth the effort um, to read through it. So um, again, just a word about how to read this book. Many of us that are in this class have the experience of reading Mere Christianity the first time, 
and not liking it at all. Some of us vowing to never read it again. Some of us hurling it into the trash can. And if that's you, that is all fine because I was there too. But what I learned from a friend was that because these were originally broadcast talks, it's much better to read the chapters aloud and far better to read one chapter at a time. So I'd commend that to you. And then as I've said before, the C.S. Lewis Doodle, uh, which is a brilliant and creative uh, site on YouTube that helps get the truth of this book across. So tonight's music has to do with our topic. Some of you should recognize this. Don't feel any pressure, uh, but you should recognize this. So we'll see if you can hear it through the computer. Okay, I see that Jane McGreevy got this right. And Tim and Liz are right that you've heard this before if you've been in a lot of these classes. So what we are listening to is a marvelous anthem called Do Not Be Afraid. And this anthem was written by a pretty contemporary musician who was a young man um, named Philip Stopford, who some of our choir met uh, before he was famous uh, when he was the organ scholar at Canterbury Cathedral. But it is a text that involves a lot of different scriptures about fear and how we are not to be afraid because of who God is. And that is directly related to our topic for this evening. Uh, once we get to the end of this chapter, this chapter tonight is a little bit of a funny chapter because Lewis kind of plays a trick on us in it. So we'll, we'll talk about that more when we get there. Uh, but I would commend listening to this piece uh, to you. Part of the reason that I think it's so appropriate is that we are living in a culture that is beset with fear right now fear about the pandemic, fear about the political situation, fear about the world, fear about so many different things. And it's very easy to buy into that and begin to become afraid ourselves. But this text is a great reminder of the truth from God's word that we do not need to be afraid when we belong to Christ. So a quick review of context. And again, the reason I review every week is uh, not to try to bore you um, since you've heard it before, but because this whole book really is a logical argument and you have to have the building block foundation under you. So we're in World War II. Uh, Lewis is at the BBC broadcasting live while the bombs are falling on London. Um, he started this book off with book one, right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe. Not starting with theology, but just about what you can observe about life. So he goes through that and his main point is that humans have this law of nature that they know about. They know what they should do, but they don't do it. 
unlike a stone that when you drop it knows it's supposed to fall. No, actually the stone doesn't know that, but it just does fall because it's what stones do. But the right thing for humans is not what they always do. So Lewis talked at the end of that book in correspondence with Jimmy Welch about how important it is for the church in times of uncertainty and questioning, which would be the time we're living in right now, we need to expound the Christian faith in a way that people can understand it and be translators of it. We talked about the whole problem of pride versus gospel humility and self-forgetfulness. We talked about the power of story and beauty and transcendence and this idea that we must be translators, not guarding the truth for ourselves, but helping others. So the second book, What Christians Believe, uh, which just as an aside, can you imagine a major broadcasting network now asking for somebody to do a series about what Christians believe? That's an amazing thing. So Lewis starts this section off by saying that if the universe was so cruel and unjust, how could you believe in God? But then he realized that how could he have an idea of what was just and unjust without a standard from somewhere? And if the whole universe had no meaning, we should never have known that. So he talks about the invasion, that we're enemy-occupied territory where the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a campaign of sabotage. And he says, going to church is where we really listen in on the secret wireless to get orders from the commander. And those orders are what we get through worship and being focused on God and through hearing his word preached. He then talks about free will and that how free will, although it makes evil possible, is the only thing that makes love or goodness or joy worth having possible as well. He also talks about the fact that we are designed as an intricate machine to run on a particular fuel, and that fuel is God. And we can choose to try to fill ourselves up with other fuel, but it does not work and that God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. He then talks about how Jesus said really, really shocking things, that you can't just look at him as a good teacher. And he says in his famous trilemma, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. He then goes on to talk about why did Jesus come? And Jesus talks about why he came and very often says it's to preach the good news of the kingdom. But when you look at the New Testament and look at the overall impact, not just of what Jesus taught, but what he did, you see the main focus is on Jesus is dying for our sins. Um, huge portions of each gospel are dedicated to the last week of Jesus's life. It really is quite astounding. And so what Jesus came to do was through his death to somehow put us right with God and give us a fresh start, which is what theologians call the atonement. And this could only happen because Jesus and the miracle of the incarnation was fully God and fully man. Lewis then goes on to talk about the new life and the things that Jesus commands his followers to do. And he says it's not just trying to be good or trying harder to be good, 
trying to follow the rules, but that instead there is when we come into a relationship with Jesus, there is something called the Christ life within us, the Holy Spirit within us. And that is the only thing that makes any good that we do possible. Lewis also talks about how Jesus commands three things, baptism, belief, and Holy Communion as means of this life of the Spirit being planted in us. So one of the things that is interesting when you look at book two in totality about what Christians believe is this great truth and paradox of the Christian life. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is just such a great summation of the gospel. Because of the first clause, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like it's all up to us. But then in the very next part, he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we had that great quotation from Dallas Willard last time that we're gonna hit again in a minute, um, where he said, God is not opposed to effort. He is opposed to earning. That grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to trying to earn your way. So this is such an important thing for us to remember that we are caught in what theologians call the now and the not yet, what Martin Luther called simul justus et peccator, that we are simultaneously justified and sinners uh, because we are in the body. And while we're in the body, we are going to be stuck in that tension. Um, and those of you that were in St. Philip's on Sunday know this is what uh, my sermon was about on Romans 7, which is one of the great passages in scripture about that battle of being stuck. So that brings us to book three. And I love the background of this book because Lewis thought he was finally done having done 10 broadcast talks. And so he gets this thank you note three days after the last talk. My dear Lewis, I want to attempt to gild the lily by trying to thank you for these last five broadcast talks of yours. You know how we all feel about them and I don't think they could have been improved. However, we do owe you an immense debt for them and should like you to know we are grateful. To show this gratitude, may I ask whether you would consider doing a longish series of talks? Well, that is not my idea of gratitude. If you sort of expect to say, and enclosed is a check for $10,000, have a nice vacation. But instead, their gratitude is shown by asking him to keep risking his life by coming to London and doing more talks. And of course, Lewis does, which is what uh, gets us this book that we are now in, book three on Christian behavior. So in chapter one of that, he talked about the three parts of morality. And this is something that I think is so very crucial for us to understand. It's a huge building block in the foundation of this book. And it is so very important in our culture right now because we have lost sight of this. And the fact that we've lost sight of it makes it very hard for us to even have civil discourse because people's understandings about this are so far away from what they've been for most of human history. 
So Lewis starts off this book talking about the three parts of morality. And I love his opening line. He says, there's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. The boy replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who was always snooping around to see if anyone's enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. And Lewis says that's the way that a lot of people feel when they hear the word morality. But Lewis says in reality, morality is the owner's manual for the human machine. It's the thing that tells us what makes us run the best, how not to gum up the works and how to live a life in the fullness of what God created us to be. And he uses this great analogy of ships sailing in formation, which if you've ever seen that, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And he says in those ships, the voyage will only be a success if the ships don't collide. If you've got six ships sailing in formation and one of them all of a sudden starts cutting across sideways and knocking into the others, it doesn't matter how beautiful and well sailed the other five are, they're going to be wrecked by this one that's a mess. And he says the second part of morality is not just the avoiding collision, but it is the idea that each ship, each individual one, has to be seaworthy and have her engines in good order. If the ships keep on colliding, they won't remain seaworthy for long. But if the steering gears are out of order, they won't be able to avoid collision. And he says the last part is where they're going. If they are supposed to be going to New York, but they end up in Calcutta, no matter how beautiful their formation was, they have utterly failed. And Lewis says this is the way morality works. That there are three parts, fair play and harmony between individuals, which is the sailing and formation, the tidying up or harmonizing the things inside each individual, which is individual morality, um, seen and unseen. And then thirdly, the general purpose of human life as a whole, what man was made for. And this is where our culture has gone off the rails. We hear so often people saying, this can't be wrong because it doesn't do anyone else harm. And the problem is when you talk that way, you're only thinking of the first thing, whether it's causing a collision among individuals. But the second thing, the tidying up within each person is hugely important. And as Lewis puts it, what is the good of drawing up on paper rules for social behavior if we know that in fact our greed, cowardice, ill temper and self-conceit are going to prevent us from keeping them? All that thinking about societal improvement will be mere moonshine and nothing but the courage or unselfishness of individuals is ever going to make any system work properly. You cannot make men good by law and without good men, you cannot have a good society. That is so very important. It's gonna undergird a lot of what he says in tonight's chapter, that you can't make good men good by law. You can say over and over again, don't be greedy and we're gonna punish you by law. Or you can say that we're gonna punish all manner of things, but it's not gonna change the human heart. Scripture tells us that the human heart is deceitful. Sorry to say that. Uh, Christians believe in original sin, as our rector Jeff Miller often says, we are all OS positive, original sin positive, and there is nothing we can do about that. It's the human condition, which is why we need Jesus. 
So then Lewis goes on to talk about different beliefs about the universe, uh, what we might call worldviews, and why that matters so profoundly. He says, religion involves a series of statements about facts, which must be either true or false. Uh, this is another way of saying that you can't say all religions are the same. If you study them, you will see that they are wildly different from each other. So Lewis says, if true, one set of conclusions will follow about the right sailing of the human fleet. If they are false, quite a different set. And he says, go back to the man that says a thing can't be wrong unless it harms another human being. He quite understands he must not damage the other ships and the convoy, but he honestly thinks that what he does to his own ship is simply his own business. And that is such a great statement of where a lot of our culture is right now. And our tendency is to judge those people and say, well, they're just so wrong. But we have to understand that a lot of them believe that really sincerely and believe that they're being virtuous in believing that, which is why we have to be able to build bridges and have dialogue. And as Lewis says, one of the things that makes a huge difference uh, in thinking about what you do with your own ship is whether it belongs to you or not. If the ship actually is someone else's property, that makes a huge difference. And Lewis says one of the biggest worldview differences we have is about whether there's such a thing as eternal life. Because if there is, it makes a huge difference. If there's not, and individuals live only 70 years or 80 or 90 or 100, then a state or a nation or a civilization that might last a thousand years is far more important than an individual. But if Christianity is true, the idea that we all have immortal souls, then the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important because the individual is eternal and the life of a state or a civilization is only a moment. So some of the implications of this first, we as Christians need to re-engage with the truth and beauty of God's law as expressed in Psalm 19. If you haven't read Psalm 19 lately, I commend that to you. One of the things that Christians have done is we've, we've bought in a little bit to that view of the little boy thinking that God is somebody looking around for someone to having a good time and telling them to stop it. And the problem is that we have, we have lost sight of the beauty of God's law, of looking at the Ten Commandments and imagining what it would be like if everyone really lived that way. The second thing that's so important is building bridges. Our tendency with people who differ from us, or at least mine, is very often to want to judge them and think, well, they must not be very smart or they must not be very ethical if they think that way. Well, that is not helpful at all. That is the pot calling the kettle black. And we are called as Christians to be ministers of reconciliation. And we live in this culture where we are being told over and over again that identity and personal morality are constructs that are solely the purview of the individual. You are your own creator and are responsible to no one except yourself. Your highest good is to create and speak your truth. And anybody that watched Prince Harry and Meghan Markle with Oprah will remember hearing Oprah say, tell us your truth, as if there is your truth, my truth, their truth, instead of the truth with a capital T, which is what actually happened. Jesus says that the way to get around this is to love our enemies. 
I am not very good at that. And I suspect many of you are not very good at that either. And we need to pray for grace to have hearts of love and compassion for those who persecute us. Instead of getting our back up and thinking that we wish that they would all just go away and leave us alone, we need to pray for them and pray boldly. I remember some of you have heard this story when I was in college, which was a long time ago. One of the biggest rock groups out there was Alice Cooper. And Alice Cooper was renowned for these wild concerts where they would break necks off chickens and drink blood and do all sorts of crazy things. And I had this friend in InterVarsity when I was in college, and she told me, I pray every day for Alice Cooper. And I thought, she is a nutcase. Why is she praying for Alice Cooper? If anybody was clearly on Satan's team, it's Alice Cooper. But she said, well, think about what a platform he has if he were to be converted to Christianity. Well, I had to admit she had a point with that. Well, those of you who know anything about Alice Cooper will know that some 10 years after that conversation, Alice Cooper had a profound conversion to Jesus Christ and has led many people to Christ since then. So we need to pray boldly for people that differ from us. All right, so last week we talked about the cardinal virtues. Classically, there's seven. The four cardinal ones, cardinal comes from the word that means hinge, uh, like the hinge of a door that you go through this door into the virtuous life. And these four virtues that are the cardinal ones are prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. Lewis and Tolkien being philologists, if they were still alive, they would comment at length, I am certain, about how we have been made to feel that these four words sound like someone's maiden aunt. They are old fashioned words. No one wants to be prudent, temperate, just, and full of fortitude, or do we? The fact of the matter is, those are the virtues that have been held up by humankind, not just since Jesus, but in the Old Testament and also by Greek philosophers. So just to run through these prudence, prudence is God wanting a child's heart, but a grown-up's head to use every bit of intelligence we have to make wise decisions. Temperance, uh, and this is one that uh, Screwtape likes to play with, we think temperance is just about not drinking alcohol, but it doesn't mean that at all. It means being moderate with respect to all pleasures, enjoying the pleasures, but going to the right length and no further. Justice is much more than what just happens in law courts. It's the old idea of what we call fairness, honesty, give and take, truthfulness, keeping promises. And fortitude means courage. Courage that faces danger, courage that perseveres, sticks it, that has grit and guts, that enables us to keep going when the going gets tough. So Lewis says perseverance and virtue are very deeply connected. And he says, when you persevere in doing just actions, you get in the end a certain quality of character. And that quality of character is what we mean when we talk about virtue. And he says, we can get three wrong ideas. The first is that if you did the right thing, even if your motivation was terribly wrong or your attitude was terrible, it doesn't matter. And he says, that's wrong because that does not lead to virtuous character. He also says, we might think God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules 
whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. And then he goes on to say that the virtues are necessary in heaven as well, that we are being prepared for an existence where those virtues are the way that life is lived. So a couple of implications, Lewis says, the main thing we learn from a serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues is that we fail. If there's any idea that God set us a sort of exam and we might get good marks by deserving them, this has to be wiped out. And then that Dallas Willard quote, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. That we need to work at virtue, that there is nothing unchristian about that. We're not trying to earn our way to God, but we are trying to respond to the God who loves us and saved us. So that brings us to tonight's chapter, social morality. This is about the just society, which uh, we've heard a whole lot about um, in the past couple of years in the political world. So Lewis says, the first thing to get clear about Christian morality between man and man is that in this department, Christ did not come to preach any brand new morality. The golden rule of the New Testament, do as you would be done by, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is a summing up of what everyone at bottom has always known to be right. Really good moral teachers never do introduce new moralities. It's quacks and cranks that do that. As Dr. Johnson said, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. The real job of every teacher is to keep on bringing us back time after time to the old simple principles, which we all are so anxious not to see, like bringing a horse back and back to the fence it has refused to jump or bringing a child back and back to the bit in its lesson that it wants to shirk. Most of you will know that when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He responded by saying, the greatest commandment is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that is a quotation from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. The moral basis of Christianity is what God revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, but what he's done in Jesus is to save us from our inability to be able to live up to that. The second thing is to get clear that Christianity has not and does not profess to have a detailed political program for applying do as you would be done by to a particular society at a particular moment. It could not have. It is meant for all men at all times, and the particular program which suited one place or time would not suit another. And anyhow, that is not how Christianity works. When it tells you to feed the hungry, it does not give you lessons in cookery. When it tells you to read the scriptures, it does not give you lessons in Hebrew and Greek or even in English grammar. It was never intended to replace or supersede the ordinary human arts and sciences. It is rather a director, which will then set them all to the right jobs and the source of energy, which will give them all new life if they will only put themselves at its disposal. Now, this is so important because I think a lot of people begin to get the idea that there is a political program or a political party or a political solution to the world's problems. 
And those of you that took screw tape will know that uh, one of the great temptations screw tape wants to do is to get us to substitute and put our faith in politics or a party or a politician instead of in Jesus. And that doesn't mean we don't seek after the best politicians and policies we can find, but we have to remember they are not the salvation of the world. They cannot be, they're never meant to be, and that we must not put all of our energy into the political world. So the third thing he says is people say the church ought to give us a lead. In other words, the church ought to tell us what to do, who to vote for, what policies to vote for. And Lewis says that is true if they mean it in the right way, but false if they mean it in the wrong way. By the church, they ought to mean the whole body of practicing Christians. And when they say that the church should give us a lead, they ought to mean that some Christians who happen to have the right talents should be economists and statesmen, and that all economists and statesmen should be Christians and their whole efforts in politics and economics should be directed to putting do as you would be done by into action. If that happened, and if we others were really ready to take it, then we should find the Christian solution for our own social problems pretty quickly. So what Lewis is saying here is it's not that the church uh, hierarchy should give direction about what to do, but that all the Christians, that massive army of the church uh, militant, as it's called in theology, that all of us should be so living out our life that we exemplify what Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But that isn't usually what we mean. We want directions and we want a politician and a party to solve our problems. And even worse, we want the clergy to tell us what to do. By a lead from the church, most people mean they want the clergy to put out a political program. That is silly. The clergy are those particular people within the whole church who have been specially trained and set aside to look after what concerns us as creatures who are going to live forever. And we are asking them to do a quite different job for which they have not been trained. That job is really on us, on the trade unionist and Christian schoolmasters. Just as Christian literature comes from Christian novelists, and uh, I can't see that because it's vanished by the screen, but these things, literature and policy don't come from a bench of bishops trying to get together and write plays and novels in their spare time. And this is so important. We've seen, particularly in the last political cycle, lots and lots of clergy get involved in political battles um, that have ended up compromising the gospel. And sometimes you do have to take a stand. Sometimes there are issues that you feel like you must take a stand on. But sometimes it is really easy for clergy to get led down the garden path about this. And this is where the congregations need to pray for the clergy, um, that we would not um, be led astray in that area, and that we would not, by getting involved in politics, do something that causes a stumbling block uh, in drawing other people to Jesus Christ. So Lewis then goes on, kind of against his will, 
uh, to describe a little bit about what the New Testament says without a lot of detail about what a fully Christian society would be like. And Lewis says, perhaps it gives us more than we can take. It tells us that there are, let me see if I can fix this screen a minute. It tells us that there are to be no passengers or parasites. If a man does not work, he ought not to eat. Everyone is to work with his own hands. And what is more, everyone's work is to produce something good. There will be no manufacturer of silly luxuries and then of sillier advertisements to persuade us to buy them. And there's to be no swank or side, no putting on airs. To that extent, a Christian society would be what we now call leftist, or I would say what would have been called leftist back then. On the other side, uh, on the other hand, it's always insisting on obedience. Obedience and outward remarks of respect from all of us to properly appointed magistrates, from children to parents, and I'm afraid this is gonna be very unpopular, from wives to husbands. Thirdly, it is to be a cheerful society, full of singing and rejoicing and regarding worry or anxiety as wrong. Courtesy is one of the Christian virtues and the New Testament hates what it calls busybodies or gossips. If there were any such a society in existence and you or I visited it, I think we should come away with a curious impression. We should feel that its economic life was very socialistic and what Lewis means by that, a Christian communal approach run by the church leadership and in that sense advanced, but that its family life and its code of manners were rather old fashioned, perhaps even ceremonious and aristocratic. Each of us would like some bits of it, but I'm afraid very few of us would like the whole thing. That is just what one would expect if Christianity is the total plan for the human machine. We have all departed from that total plan in different ways, and each of us wants to make out that his own modification of the original plan is the plan itself. You will find this again and again about anything that is really Christian. Everyone is attracted by bits of it and wants to pick out those bits and leave the rest. That is why we do not get much further, and that is why people who are fighting for quite opposite things can both say they are fighting for Christianity. And I wanna make just a couple of comments here. One of the things that Lewis is talking about that is something that is so profoundly countercultural, but is all over the New Testament is this idea of respect for authority. Um, there is a respect for authority that pervades everything in the New Testament. Um, Romans tells us that we are to obey the government authorities and to respect them and that they are God's instrument in our lives. We are also told to obey our spiritual leaders, that we are to pray for them and support them. Um, but one of the problems that we have is that we are so convinced that we individually know everything and know what is right. And you see this in the United States in our political life, where so many people believe that we live in an absolute democracy. Um, those of you who are my age and were old enough to actually study physics and learn about the difference between a democracy and a republic know that we live in a republic 
rather than a democracy. And the problem with a democracy sometimes is it's the idea of every man, a pope. Every person thinks that his idea or her idea is the absolute most important thing and that everyone ought to do it. And the problem is that kind of idea has carried over into just about everything. I got a really funny birthday card yesterday from my wife. And on the front of the card, it had Jesus at the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. And Jesus is standing on a hill and he's holding up a loaf of bread and he's holding up some fish. And as he does that, uh, you see him looking out at this hungry crowd assembled over there. And one person yells out, I'm gluten free. And then the next person yells out, fish are tainted by mercury. And then the third person yells out, I'm vegan. And so here you have this miraculous feast being provided, but people are doing nothing but complaining. And so often the problem that we have in the church and in so many other institutions is everyone thinks that they know what the best way forward is. But the New Testament tells us that what we are to do is to seek to obey our leaders, to follow those in authority, to pray without ceasing for those in authority. And if we differ with them, to go individually to them and to make known what our problem is and then to try to work it out one-on-one. -on -one. But the problem for most of us, whenever we don't get our own way or something doesn't go the way that we think it should, whether it's in the church or bridge club or in our family or in the government, is we go and find people that we know will agree with us and we become an echo chamber of complaining. And what Lewis is trying to get at is that the fully Christian society um, and what he sort of imagined it to be here can never happen on this earth because unless we get to the point that we are all without sin, which I'm sorry to tell you, that's not gonna happen this side of heaven. Um, unless we get to that point, we cannot have a fully Christian society. All right, let's see if I can get to this next slide. There we go. He also takes a little rabbit trail here about interest, which is um, something that is, no pun intended, interesting to think about. Um, he says that it is interesting to look at the fact that the ancient Greeks, the Jews in the Old Testament, and the great Christian teachers of the Middle Ages all told us not to lend money at interest and that lending money at interest is wrong. Now, of course, lending money at interest, what we call investment is the basis of our whole system. And he says, it may not absolutely follow that we are wrong. Some people say that when Moses and Aristotle and the Christians agreed in forbidding interest or usury as they called it, they could not foresee the joint stock company and we're only thinking of the private money lender and that therefore we do not need to bother about what they said. Lewis says, that's a question I can't decide on. I'm not an economist and I don't know whether the investment system is responsible for the state we're in or not. That's where we want the Christian economist. But I should not have been honest if I had not told you that three great civilizations had agreed or it seems so at first sight and condemning the very thing in which we based our whole life. Lewis then goes on to talk about work and giving. He says in the passage where the New Testament says that everyone must work, it gives us a reason in order that he may have something to give 
to those in need. Charity, giving to the poor, is an essential part of Christian morality. And the frightening parable of the sheep and the goats, which is in Matthew 25, uh, it seems to be the point on which everything turns. That's the parable where Jesus says um, to the sheep, come you blessed of my father, for when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was naked, you gave me clothes. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. And then the goats say, but Lord, when did we see you naked or hungry or in prison? And Jesus says, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Whatever you did not for the least of these, you did not do for me. Some people nowadays say that charity ought to be unnecessary. And instead of giving to the poor, we ought to be producing a society in which there were no poor to give to, sort of a guaranteed income level. They may be quite right in saying we ought to produce that kind of society. But if anyone thinks that as a consequence, you can stop giving in the meantime, he's parted company with all Christian morality. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give up more than we can spare. And in other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, um, and I would add who are not Christians, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. I'm speaking now of charities in the common way. Particular cases of distress among your own relatives, friends, neighbors, or employees, which God, as it were, forces upon your notice, may demand much more, even to the crippling or endangering of your own position. Now, that is something that uh, is probably uncomfortable for most of us to hear. But it is interesting that it's an area that Lewis struggled with. And what he ultimately ended up doing, as we've talked about before, is he gave away all the royalties from all of his books. They went into a blind trust. And in fact, one year, he really did get that uh, crippling or endangering he talks about at the end, because he forgot that no matter how much he gave away, that the state, the inland revenue for the British, was still going to want their pound of flesh. So Lewis had this amazing year where his books made all this money and he gave it all away. But then the tax bill came and it was in the five figures pound wise and he didn't have that. And friends had to come help him out to pay his tax bill. So Lewis knew whereof he spoke there. And I think that is an area um, where the Christian church needs to uh, all of us think seriously about where we are in terms of generosity. If we are clenching things close, or if we are really trying to do what scripture says of having generous hearts and considering the needs of others. And that brings us to the topic of fear where we started with the music. For many of us, the great obstacle to charity lies not in our luxurious living or desire for more money, but for our fear, our fear of insecurity. This must be recognized as a temptation. Sometimes our pride hinders our charity. We're tempted to spend more than we ought on the showy forms of generosity, tipping and hospitality, 
and less than we ought on those who really need our help. And now, before I end, I'm going to venture on a guess as to how this section has affected any who have read it. My guess is that there are some leftist people among them who are very angry that it has not gone further in that direction, and some people of an opposite sort who are angry because they think it has gone much too far. If so, that brings us right up against the real snag in all this drawing up of blueprints for a Christian society. Most of us are not really approaching the subject in order to find out what Christianity says. We are approaching it in the hope of finding Christian support from Christianity for the views of our own party. Ouch, I'm gonna read that again. Most of us are not really approaching the subject in order to find out what Christianity says. We are approaching it in the hope of finding support from Christianity for the views of our own party. We are looking for an ally where we are offered either a master or a judge. I am just the same. There are bits in this section that I wanted to leave out. And that is why nothing, whatever, is going to come of such talks unless we go a much longer way round. In other words, Lewis is saying that this speculation about Christian society and trying to build the just society is not the right way to approach things and not the right question. And so he comes to this conclusion, which is the most important part of the whole chapter. And what he says is this, a Christian society is not going to arrive until most of us really want it. And we are not going to want it until we become fully Christian. Let me say that again. We are, a Christian society is not going to arrive until most of us really want it. And we are not going to want it, oops. We are not going to want it until we become fully Christian. I may repeat, do as you would be done by, do unto others as you would have them do unto you till I am black in the face, but I cannot really carry it out until I love my neighbor as myself. I cannot learn to love my neighbor as myself until I learn to love God. And I cannot learn to love God except by learning to obey him. And so, as I warned you, we are driven on to something more inward, driven on from social matters to religious matters. For the longest way round is the shortest way home. Let me read that last point again. I cannot learn to love my neighbor as myself till I learn to love God. And I cannot learn to love God except by learning to obey him. And so, as I warned you, we are driven on to something more inward, driven on from social matters to religious matters, for the longest way round is the shortest way home. And what Lewis means here is that our focus, as important it is to be good citizens of our country, is it is much more important to remember that we are actually, as Christians, citizens of the kingdom of God. And that as important as it is to try to work for a better society and more just society, that it is infinitely more important to be trying to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, as we've said before, when you look at Jesus's ministry, 
in the midst of one of the most corrupt governments in the Jewish history in the kingdom of Judea with Herod, who is one of the worst monarchs, he's right up there with the Borgias uh, in terms of being awful. Um, you look at Herod and then you look at the Roman emperors in this period and they are decadent and debauched and all sorts of horrible things and terrible things are being done by the government. And Jesus's whole focus is working on changing the world. Remember what he says, his first words when he begins to minister is to say, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. He does not come with a social or political program. Now, let me hasten to say, it is important for us to be good citizens of our country, but we need to make sure that our love of our country doesn't take the place of the love of the kingdom of which Jesus has made us citizens by the sacrifice of his blood. So Lewis in all of this is trying to caution us about keeping our priorities straight, about not falling for what Satan would love, which is for us to get all worked up about political differences. Remember, one of the marks of the activity of the Holy Spirit is seeing the fruit of the Spirit come out. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if you see things that are characterized by anger, envy, factions, blasphemy, I'll refer you to Galatians 5, because right before the fruit of the spirit, it says, for the works of the flesh or are plain. And then that list that I just gave you about pride and enmity and factions and all of that is right there. So this is a challenging chapter, uh, but it is a reminder to us that the first thing we need to do is to go right back to what Jesus said in the great commandment. Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. And as we truly begin to do that, as the church begins to do that, and begins to think about Jesus's admonition in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Then we are on the beginning of the right road. So that brings us to our uh, closing quotation, which has to do with a lot of what we've talked about, this whole idea of submission. We don't like to submit, or maybe you do. Um, I'm not very fond of it. I like to get my own way. But the fact of the matter is that it is only when we submit, when we give up our lives, that we open ourselves to the real joy that Jesus wants to share with us. So let's say this quotation together. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, 
ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we confess to you the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience of our lives. Lord, we confess to you that we bristle against being under authority and we want our own way. We want to be our own God. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength to love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray through the grace of your Holy Spirit that you would help shape our hearts to move away from the selfishness of our own desires and to seek after you. Lord, we pray that you would help us as citizens of two kingdoms, citizens of your kingdom, Lord, where our true citizenship lives, but citizens of our own country to be good citizens of both of those. But Lord, we pray that you would help us never to put our trust in men and to know that the only safe place for our trust is in you and in your capable hands. Lord, we pray that as the song said, that we would not be afraid because though we do not know what the future holds, we know who holds the future. And we thank you for that and pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.